From New York, this is Democracy Now! The relationship between Russia and Ukraine is marked by a very long history of imperial domination and oppression. And Russian nationalists, uh, Putin is a, is a Russian nationalist, they see the separate existence of Ukrainians as uh, something which will lead to the destruction not only of the so-called Russian civilizational space, like post-Soviet space, but also of the body of the Russian nation itself. As 17 Ukrainians are killed in a Russian missile strike on a Donetsk market, and the United States pledges a billion dollars more for Ukraine, we speak with activists from Ukraine and Russia on a joint speaking tour of the United States to speak out against the war. We'll look at the humanitarian crisis in the Democratic Republic of the Congo as well. What we saw and heard in the Democratic Republic of Congo was shocking, heartbreaking, and sobering. We have seen that in the past 18 months, and uh, that alone the humanitarian situation in Eastern Congo has deteriorated to an alarming extent. It is frankly the worst situation we have ever seen, with around 8 million people in need of urgent humanitarian assistance, We'll speak to Jan Eglin, the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. He's just back from the DRC. We'll also talk with him about the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A Russian missile struck a crowded outdoor market in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region Wednesday, killing at least 17 people, including a child, and injuring 32 others. It was one of the deadliest attacks in Ukraine in months. Diana Kaldak, who works in a pharmacy next to the market, described the attack. One woman walked into the pharmacy on her own. Her arm and leg were bleeding. She had a big wound on her arm. Another woman was scared inside by soldiers. She had one open fracture and bone was sticking out of her leg. In Russia, officials say one person was injured, at least three buildings and several cars destroyed as a Ukrainian drone struck Wednesday near the headquarters of Russia's Southern Military District Command in the city of Rostov. Romania's president said Wednesday parts of a Russian drone were found on its territory near the Danube River following a Russian assault on a Ukrainian port earlier this week. The president said Romania remains on alert after the attack and is in contact with its NATO allies. If it is confirmed that these elements belong to a Russian drone, such a situation would be completely inadmissible and a serious violation of the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Romania, a NATO ally. Sudan's military ruler has issued a decree ordering the dissolution of the Rapid Support Forces, the rival paramilitary group that's fighting Sudan's army since April. The decree came amidst continued heavy fighting in Sudan's capital region. On Tuesday, witnesses said artillery attacks by the Sudanese army killed at least 32 people, injured dozens more in the city of Abdurman. On Wednesday, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, visited Sudanese refugees in Chad, where she announced new U.S. sanctions on leaders of the RSF over widespread human rights abuses. In Gabon, Leaders of last week's coup said Wednesday ousted President Ali Bongo has been released from house arrest and is free to seek medical care abroad. L'ancien président de la République 
The former president of the republic, Ali Bongo Ondimba, is free to move about. He may, if he wishes, travel abroad for medical checkups. Ali Bongo suffered a stroke five years ago that left him partially paralyzed. Members of his family, including his wife and son, remain under house arrest. They are accused of high treason for looting Gabon's treasury and enriching themselves at the expense of Gabon. The World Food Program says it'll further slash the amount of humanitarian assistance it provides to Afghanistan, where more than 15 million people face severe food insecurity. WFP Afghanistan country director Xiaowei Li blamed a lack of funding for the latest cuts, which will see the U.N. agency provide emergency food aid to just 3 million Afghans. This month, we're having to reduce another 2 million. That means 10 million people that we had served previously and who need assistance are going to bed hungry without any food assistance that WFP is able to provide. We'll have more on the humanitarian crises in Afghanistan, as well as the Democratic Republic of the Congo and elsewhere later in the broadcast with Jan Eglund, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. The Biden administration says it's canceling all existing oil and gas drilling leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska and banning drilling on 13 million acres or over half the National Petroleum Reserve. But the new regulations will not block the $8 billion Willow Project, which Biden approved earlier this year, despite widespread objections from environmentalists and indigenous activists. Climate activists are calling on the Biden administration to go further and end all oil and drilling. A judge in Georgia has ruled that two of Donald Trump's co-defendants in the state's election subversion case will be tried together beginning October 23rd. Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee on Wednesday granted a request by Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough for a speedy trial in the case, though he denied their request to be tried separately. In Colorado, a new lawsuit seeks to bar Donald Trump from the 2024 presidential ballot. Six Colorado voters argue Trump's actions before, during and after the January 6, 2021 insurrection disqualify him from running, citing the 14th Amendment. Meanwhile, a federal judge in New York has found Donald Trump liable for defaming writer E. Jean Carroll for a second time. Trump continued to mock and disparage Carroll even after a New York jury earlier this year ordered him to pay $5 million to Carroll for sexually abusing her at a department store in the 90s and defaming her. U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan said a trial in January will be limited to determining how much to award E. Jean Carroll in further damages. The Senate's top Republican says he has no plans to retire and will finish his term. 81-year-old Senate minority leader Mitch McConnell made the remarks Wednesday amidst widespread speculation over his health following a series of falls, a concussion, and two recent incidents where he froze up while answering reporters' questions. To make on that subject. Oh, what do you those who I'm going to finish my term as leader and I'm going to finish my senator. This week, McConnell released a letter from Congress's attending physician who said Tess had ruled out a stroke or seizure. The special counsel investigating President Biden's son says he'll seek a criminal indictment against Hunter Biden on tax and gun charges by September 29th. This comes after a judge in July rejected a previous plea deal that would have seen Biden avoid jail time. 
In Mexico, the former Mexico City mayor, Claudia Scheinbaum, was selected by the governing Morena Party as its candidate for the 2024 presidential election. President Andres Manuel López Obrador is not eligible to run again, since leaders can only serve a single six-year term, according to Mexico's constitution. Shane Bohm, a close ally of AMLO, is seen as a favorite ahead of June's election as Morena rules 22 of Mexico's 32 states. She spoke after her selection was announced. Today, democracy won. Today, the people of Mexico decided, and I am the national coordinator to defend the transformation based on the people of Mexico's decision. This work is teamwork. Last week, an opposition coalition selected its presidential candidate, lawmaker Xochitl Gávez, meaning the two top contenders are women, and Mexico is expected to elect its first woman president. Half of Mexico's Congress is female, and its cabinet is gender-balanced. In more news from Mexico, the nation's Supreme Court has decriminalized abortion, ruling bans on the procedure are a violation of human rights. Abortion is still considered unlawful in two-thirds of Mexican states, but people in those states can now receive abortions at federal medical facilities, and states will be barred from penalizing those patients and providers. It's part of a wave of abortion rights victories across Latin America. Colombia, Argentina, Uruguay and Guyana have also moved to either legalize or decriminalize abortion. Meanwhile, here in the United States, anti-abortion crusaders are pushing new measures to make abortion access even more challenging. Texas cities and counties are passing new laws that criminalize driving through them to get to an abortion provider. New data shows abortions increased in the first half of the year in states that still allow the procedure. Those states have been absorbing patients forced to travel from places where abortions were banned following the overturning of Roe v. Wade last summer. A federal judge on Wednesday ordered Texas Governor Greg Abbott to remove his dangerous floating border barrier in the Rio Grande. The Justice Department sued over the barrier in July, which has been implicated in at least two migrant deaths and many more injuries. The thousand-foot-long line of buoys are separated by circular saw blades. Governor Abbott has already appealed the order. The Immigrant Legal Resource Center calls the buoys a symbol of the hate-filled and inhumane policies Governor Abbott has embraced as he continues to wage war on immigrants. The beautiful Rio Grande River has been turned into a militarized zone, they said. In Spain, soccer star Jenny Hermoso has filed a sexual assault criminal complaint against Luis Robiales, the head of the Spanish Soccer Federation, who forcibly kissed her during the World Cup trophy ceremony. The sexual assault was witnessed live by millions of people who are tuning in to celebrate Spain's historic victory. Rubiales has been temporarily suspended by FIFA while the team's coach was fired. Hermoso's teammates vowed not to play for the national team again unless management was changed. Meanwhile, protesters have been taken to the streets in Spain in solidarity with Jenny Hermoso. This is a crime. This is clearly sexual harassment under Spanish law, and not only Spanish law, but also under European law. The Istanbul Convention, signed by Europe in 2011 and ratified by Spain in 2014, considers this as sexual abuse, and it is a crime.
Here in New York, a court in Westchester County has exonerated a black man nearly 48 years after he was wrongfully convicted on rape charges. Leonard Mack served more than seven years in prison after a jury found him guilty in 1975. DNA has since eliminated him as the perpetrator and identified a different man who's confessed to the crime. The Innocence Project says it's the longest ever wrongful conviction to be overturned by DNA evidence. Mack was officially exonerated Tuesday, his 72nd birthday. I thank God that finally the truth came out. And now I can truly say, <laughs> now I can truly say that I'm free. And acclaimed documentary filmmaker Nancy Bursky has died at 78. Her first film, The Loving Story, chronicled the relationship which led to the Supreme Court's landmark decision legalizing interracial relationships. It won a Peabody for its, quote, gorgeous and sympathetic telling of a couple's fight to persevere in the face of injustice. Bursky founded and for 10 years ran the full-frame documentary film festival. In 2017, she appeared on Democracy Now! to talk about her film, The Rape of Race. Taylor, about a 24-year-old black sharecropper who was gang-raped in 1944 and refused to be silenced. This is Nancy Bursky on Democracy Now! Reese Taylor is amazingly courageous for speaking up. As you mentioned, very few women did that. They were afraid for their lives, their families would be threatened, and, and their friends' livelihoods would be threatened. So what she did was extraordinary. Um, and, and, you know, we made this film before this Me Too movement. We had no idea that this would all erupt. But now, as I look back on it, I realize that Reese Taylor's story is the first link in a long chain. Not even the first link. It really goes back to slavery. But it is a very pivotal link in a chain that goes right through the civil rights movement, right up through black power, and obviously is resolved today. To see the whole interview, you can go to democracynow.org. And those are the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, we speak with activists from Ukraine and Russia on a joint speaking tour of the United States to speak out against the war. Stay with us. Zach Bryan. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Narmeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show looking at the war in Ukraine. 
On Wednesday, a Russian missile hit an outdoor market in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region, killing 17 and injuring 32. It was one of the deadliest attacks in Ukraine in months. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky condemned the, quote, utter inhumanity of the attack. Diana Khodak, who works in a pharmacy next to the market, described the missile strike. I only saw a flash and then shouted to my colleagues, lie on the floor. All the customers lay down on the floor. All the pharmacy employees lay down on the floor. I heard things falling over. Then everything was covered in smoke and fire started. One wounded woman walked into the pharmacy on her own. Her arm and her leg were bleeding. She had a big wound on her arm. Another woman was scared inside by soldiers. She had an open fracture and her bone was sticking out from her leg. She was very pale. She remained conscious but in shock while she was given first aid. The attack on the Ukrainian market occurred as U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken made a surprise visit to Kyiv, where he met with President Zelensky. Blinken announced $1 billion in new U.S. aid to Ukraine. We will continue to stand by Ukraine's side. And today, we're announcing new assistance totaling more than $1 billion in this common effort. That includes $665.5 million in new military and civilian security assistance. Uh, in total, we committed over $43 billion in, assist in security assistance since the beginning of the Russian aggression. In Moscow, the Kremlin criticized Blinken's visit, saying it's proof the United States plans to keep funding Ukraine's war effort, quote, until the last Ukrainian. We're joined now by two activists, one Russian, one Ukrainian. They're on a speaking tour of the United States organized by the Ukraine Solidarity Network, a group which supports Ukraine's struggle for self-determination. Ilya Budraitskis is a Russian historian and political theorist who was previously based in Moscow and recently joined University of California, Berkeley, as a visiting scholar. He's co-founder of POSLE, which means after a network of Russian intellectuals in exile who oppose the war against Ukraine. He's the author of the award-winning book Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia. Hanna Perhoda is a Ukrainian historian at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. She's a member of the Ukrainian Democratic Socialist Organization, uh, which is called Sozialny Ruch. She's also part of the European Network for Solidarity with Ukraine. We welcome you both uh, to New York uh, and to the United States and to Democracy Now! Um, Hannah, we want to begin with you. Can you describe what's happening to your country now, uh, your response to the latest attack in the Donetsk region? In fact, Hannah, are you also from the Donetsk region? Yeah, uh, basically, the essence of this war um, is the same as one year before. That means that most of the Ukrainians living in any part of the country are uh, facing a threat uh, of Russian missiles um, targeting their residential areas because Russia has engaged itself in a strategy of, of terror against uh, civilians. And this continues as we... Um, can witness it with this horrible attack on uh, on a on a city in the Donetsk region, and yeah, in fact, I'm from this region. It uh, and it's very painful for me to see all these uh, streets and cities uh, that I spent my childhood uh, in 
to be uh, completely uh, destroyed by the ongoing war, uh, but also what defines uh, this war is the fact that a great, uh, a big part of the Ukrainian territories are still under the Russian occupation, and civilians living in these territories are facing um, torture, they are facing murder, they are facing rape, and uh, also forced displacement, as well as the mass uh, kidnapping of, of children who are sent to Russia in order to be re-educated. Then this is something we was, must not forget, that the reality of this war is uh, still um, is still horrible. So, um, but also something which uh, is not fading away um, is the uh, consensus among the Ukrainian population. Uh, even despite all the political uh, disagreements inside the Ukrainian population, because it's a complex society, um, all the citizens of Ukraine are united uh, by, an, by as, um, a strong consensus that uh, only the uh, only the fact, only uh, our capability uh, to liberate the whole territory. Uh, of uh, Ukraine could be a um, uh, precondition for the lasting peace uh, for Ukraine and for the whole region, because Russia and Vladimir Putin are still openly denying the very right uh, of Ukrainians to exist as a state and as a separate society from Russia. Uh, Hannah, could you uh, elaborate on that, uh, the, the sense that you have of what the trajectory and the purpose of this war are now uh, for Russia uh, and where you see this, this going? I will try to summarize it uh, because it's, uh, not, uh, it's, not an easy, it not, it's not an easy war uh, to understand maybe from for. Uh, from outside, but basically uh, this war is not a response for some external military threat for Russia emanating from NATO, for example, but this war is a response of the Russian ruling classes to the internal internal threat uh, to their power, because Russian uh, civil society was quite active uh, on the last, uh, the last years, and also um, uh, being under threat of uh, um, <clears throat> of democratizing Russian society, uh, the Putin and his clan actually try to eliminate all possible um, democratizing tendencies uh, in the neighborhood. That's why uh, the war uh, in Ukraine was uh, uh, provoked by Russia in. Uh, 2014. That's why also Putin uh, invaded it. And it is necessary to understand that the reasons of this war are internal to Russia and has uh, must, uh, has uh, more to do with the internal politics than with some uh, external international uh, relations uh, 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 between Russia and, uh, for example, the Western countries. Uh, so, uh, actually, we see that um, this—we uh, don't have an easy, um, an easy exit from from this situation because 
Putin doesn't seem to show any um, clear um, demands of what he actually wants from Ukraine. Does he doesn't? Uh, I think this war is not about territories. It's about the full control of Ukraine in order to prevent it to become a prosperous and democratic country, because um, it may awaken some dangerous ideas among Russians themselves, who are also tired of the autocratic regime and of the extreme inequality uh, in Russia. So, basically, uh, the danger of this war, that even if somehow Ukraine cedes uh, some part of territories or even the whole territory of Ukraine uh, would belong to Russia, uh, the war would continue because any uh, democratic country on the borders of Russia is a threat for the Putin's regime. Ilya Budraitskis, I'd, I'd like to bring you in uh, to the conversation. We've had you on the show a few times, the first time, in fact, just weeks before the Russian invasion and then on two subsequent uh, occasions uh, when we did not disclose your location, though you had fled the country and now you're at uh, at the uh, UC Berkeley. If you could uh, talk about what the situation now is in Russia, respond to what Hannah said about, uh, you know, the protests that began in Russia in 2011, how they were connected. Uh, you've said that over the last several years, uh, the Russian uh, population has been preparing or has been prepared for this war. Talk about what you know of the situation on the ground there now. Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Uh, so basically, I agree with what uh, with, with what just uh, Anna was saying. Uh, this uh, criminal war is not just war against Ukraine. It's it's uh, war of the Russian regime uh, against its uh, own society. Uh, and this war uh, started not just a year ago. It it started. Uh, uh, as you said, uh, from 2011, uh, then uh, in uh, 2014 with the annexation of Crimea, and somehow you see the uh, combination of the external and internal uh, goals of uh, of uh, Putin's regime in his uh, actions uh, against his own population and against his neighbors. Uh, so definitely, this war is uh, is uh, ongoing to to uh, save the the regime uh, to strengthen its uh, power over its own population. But it's also about the imperial uh, and imperialist uh, ambitions of. Uh, Putin's Russia in the post-Soviet space, uh, and probably Ukraine uh, will be not the last uh, goal of this aggression if the conflict uh, will uh, continue in, in different ways and, and this, uh, this uh, regime will continue to exist. Uh, so, uh, as you mentioned, in uh, 2011, uh, Putin was challenged by the rise of the uh, huge protest movement. That was a movement uh, for the democratization of political system, for some more just redistribution of the wealth in the country. Uh, and in fact, the annexation of uh, Crimea, the rally around the f uh, flag uh, that uh, appeared in the Russian society, 
uh, after it uh, was, uh, was the answer of the regime uh, to this democratic challenge. Uh, then, uh, even uh, just a few years before the full-scale invasion, you also saw the uh, rise of the new protest movement, uh, even uh, the protest movement of the uh, more younger generation that uh, was not uh, participated in the, in the, in the protests of uh, 2011, and uh, the full-scale invasion uh, of Ukraine uh, somehow marked a significant turn in the very character of the Putin's regime, uh, which uh, became an open uh, and extremely repressive uh, dictatorship. Uh, so for now in Russia you have much more political prisoners uh, that you had, uh, for example, in the late uh, Soviet period under, under Brezhnev. Uh, you have a total uh, censorship, uh, you have an atmosphere of uh, fear, you have the more and more repressive uh, measures uh, coming uh, from the government, uh, but uh, somehow we see that uh, even uh, in this very dramatic situation, there are still many kind of hidden dissent uh, in the uh, Russian society. Mm. I wanted to ask Hanna Parachoda. Um, Anthony Blinken just went to Kyiv in this surprise visit. I think it's his third time. And he made the announcement of billion more dollars in, uh, in aid to the Ukraine war. The counteroffensive, very difficult. The U.S. is now apparently going to promise depleted uranium ammunition before that cluster bombs violating a treaty, not that the U.S. has signed on to, but 110 other countries have signed on to against cluster bombs. I'm wondering about your thoughts on the war. It sounds like for many the Ukrainians, there's a lot of pressure to continue to say the war must be supported um, at any cost, because otherwise it means Russia um, can perhaps take over Ukraine or parts of Ukraine very significantly. But you are on an anti-war speaking tour. Um, yeah. Actually, for Ukraine, uh, this is the war of self-defense, and I think it's very important to make a difference between, uh, you know, the use of violence with uh, the aim of aggression and the use of violence with the aim to protect your own existence. Uh, so this is why uh, in Ukraine, as I said, all the civic and political organizations are united by uh, this consensus that uh, you know, the uh, political life in Ukraine, for example, uh, the life of the civil society is possible uh, under the condition, is not possible under the condition of uh, foreign occupation, occupation by a foreign army, which actually commit uh, war crimes. Uh, so uh, that's why the um, support from other states and weapons are essential for Ukrainians uh, in order to sustain their effort in order to uh, liberate the territory. This is not just about liberating the territories, of course. This is about liberating the cities uh, where our families and friends are living under the constant uh, threat and under the uh, danger of being, as I said, raped and murdered uh, by the occupying forces. And the fact that uh, uh, 
countries like our partners continue to sustain the military effort of Ukraine uh, is really essential. But I don't think uh, that uh, Ukraine actually receives enough uh, to uh, be really able to um, uh, be in a better position uh, and to um, regain its territories and to, for example, start the negotiations from a from a strong position. Um, and um, yes, so the uh, question of uh, weapons uh, is essential to us because it's uh, the question of our survival as a society and of our political, economic uh, sovereignty. Of course, nobody wants this war to continue, especially Ukrainians. But if we, like, I think we must remember that uh, praising compromise with aggressor has never brought peace uh, to anyone. It brought a total war. It brought a total war in 1939, for example. So when we are faced with this kind of a state, a Russian state, an obscurantist, ultra-conservative, authoritarian force, uh, we must act in order to defend uh, such things that often we take for granted being here in the Western countries. And that's what Ukrainians are doing. Um, and if, I mean, if we do not support uh, them in this struggle and if we let Russian authoritarianism win, it will mean that the authoritarian forces also in our countries, in the US, for example, will become uh, stronger. Uh, so this is basically uh, one of the demands and the position that we share, both progressivists uh, in Ukraine, both progressive forces, uh, anti-war Russian forces, uh, we share this perspective that the development of our societies, the peaceful life in both Ukraine and Russia is only possible if uh, Ukraine wins. Ilya, could you uh, also talk about that, uh, you know, where you see the war going, what the trajectory is, uh, and talk about the changes that have been instituted domestically uh, within Russia recently, in particular the controversy around new history textbooks that are being taught in high schools and uh, increasing the age of conscription to increase the number of, of uh, Russian men uh, eligible for uh, service in the military. Uh, so, uh, in fact, uh, all your <laughs> questions, they somehow uh, related to each other because uh, all it uh, showed that uh, Putin basically is preparing for uh, to continue this uh, this war, uh, to prepare his uh, his population, his citizens to to become uh, soldiers, uh, to, to become a uh, war meat, <laughs> you know, in, in, in this war to, to give their uh, flesh and, and, and blood there. Uh, and uh, as uh, Anna just <clears throat> said there, no uh, any clear goals of, uh, of Russia in this war. So it's always changing. So from one side, uh, you, can, uh, you can hear uh, that 
Russia just want to keep the uh, territories that uh, it, it already uh, control. Uh, in the same time, uh, you hear uh, regularly from Putin that the final goals of so-called special military operation uh, must be achieved, and the final goals is, is control over uh, all uh, Ukraine. Uh, it's, it's a regime change of Ukraine. It's what Putin uh, called uh, denazification and demilitarization. So these goals are, are, still, are still there. Uh, so it seems that uh, he, uh, his um, uh, strategy is very depends on, on uh, the conjuncture, on uh, what he, uh, he uh, could <laughs> gain. Uh, and he uh, he will uh, he will uh, catch from the situation as uh, as 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 much as uh, possible until uh, he he will be stopped in 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 some point. So in this sense, I think uh, that uh, any let's say uh, significant unsuccess of the Russian troops uh, will uh, create a true uh, you know basis for some uh, peace talks will give Ukraine a much stronger position in these peace talks. Uh, so uh, in Russia, well, you see the, the preparation for the next uh, draft. Uh, so the rise uh, of the age uh, for the men for the draft uh, now uh, uh, came from uh, 27 to, uh, to 30. Uh, so, uh, according to new Russian laws, when you uh, got the, the uh, letter, uh, like from uh, army, in the same moment, in the same uh, minute, uh, you are not allowed to leave the country. Your uh, driving uh, driver's uh, license uh, are uh, uh, will be. Uh, suspended uh, and so on so so uh, basically uh, basically it's uh, uh, it is very uh, very strict very uh, repressive uh, type of uh, enforced uh, uh, you know conscription uh, conscription to the Russian army and then uh, as you mentioned from the beginning of this new uh, year in in school in uh, in the universities uh, the number of new courses uh, like so-called patriotic courses uh, were uh, were introduced so for example in uh, universities uh, now it's obligatory uh, for all the students to uh, study a so-called uh, DNA of Russia course. Uh, that means uh, that the essence of uh, Russian uh, state, <laughs> the essence of Russian history, which is a sort of perpetual war uh, for the glory of the country, for the uh, glory of, of the empire, uh, the permanent expansion uh, of its uh, borders, uh, somehow rooted uh, in, the, in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in blood, <laughs> in spirit of, uh, of every uh, Russian. And it's uh, very much uh, similar to the classical uh, fascist uh, ideas, for example, the idea of uh, Benito Mussolini, uh, that the state uh, is is not just institution, but it's a kind of uh, spiritual uh, spiritual force, uh, spiritual uh, entity. Uh, 
Uh, so uh, all that is uh, is definitely very scary, and all of uh, that mark uh, the uh, the ongoing uh, preparation for the long term uh, uh, war uh, from the side of Russia. I wanted to ask Hanna Perkhoda. You are a Ukrainian historian. You're a socialist about the concerns um, of. Uh, people who say neo-Nazis in Ukraine are being strengthened by U.S. support or the West support for the war. We had on Ukrainian-American um, journalist Lev Golenkin, uh, who said Azov is a hub for neo-Nazis to come to Ukraine from the United States and other places in the West to learn to fight, much like Islamists in different parts of the Middle East uh, recruited uh, Islamic fighters. Your response to this? Um, well, there is a lot of things to say. Uh, first of all, about this uh, mythology around uh, and the fact that around this idea promoted by Russia that Ukraine is somehow has uh, a large right-wing uh, groups uh, who are numerous and exercising um, a large influence on the Ukrainian politics. Uh, I would like to stress that even after the five years of the war in, in Donbass, after the Crimean annexation, uh, the, uh, during the parliamentary elections in Ukraine in 2019, the coalition of extreme right of right-wing forces only had 2% uh, of uh, of votes and uh, didn't manage to uh, go to the parliament. So basically, Ukrainian parliament, you wouldn't find uh, right-wing parties represented. They were represented before uh, 2014, but uh, now this is not the case. And also, after uh, all these years of war, Ukrainians, which are supposed to be, uh, like Putin says, uh, uh, right-wingers or uh, even they, he called them fascists. They elected a Jewish Russian speaking president who was openly opposed to the ethno nationalist agenda. So uh, right wing forces in Ukraine, they do exist because, as I said earlier, Ukraine is a complex society, not a homogenic one. Uh, and it exists like in the other European countries. Um, however, uh, the right wing, extreme right wing forces uh, didn't manage to become a legitimate political subject on the, um, uh, in the institutional politics. However, yes, they are present in, in the army, but their presence is now kind of uh, demi uh, diminished because, well, Ukraine has one million of soldiers now who are defending the territory of Ukraine. And 99% of these people are ordinary Ukrainians, not belonging to any political party, political force. Uh, so it's kind of strange to think that Ukraine is infiltrated, the Ukrainian army is infiltrated by, by the Nazis and the right-wingers. Uh, and you have also, well, at the same time, you have these Azov battalions, but they were under Zelensky losing their uh, influence inside of the, of the Ukrainian army. So I don't want to say that the problem of the right-wing uh, ideas of the right-wing organization is an existent in Ukraine. Uh, of course, it's existent. We as progressivist forces, uh, uh, left-wing uh, 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 forces in Ukraine are like facing this problem 
uh, you know, in a very concrete way, in a very personal way. Um, uh, but also, I think it's uh, it could be an irresponsible uh, thing to concentrate on the presence of uh, right-wing uh, organizations in Ukraine and to forget that the extreme right uh, in Russia is actually in power and is currently waging a war of aggression, a war uh, that is justified by the uh, kind of discourse that could be called in incitation to genocide, though this is the things are kind of, you know, very serious. And it's kind of a pity that uh, this there is this disproportional perception of uh, the right wing threat in, in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, so, yeah, this is my response to that. I, I it it could be developed, of course. Uh, uh, well, Hannah, but, per, uh, maybe per, Ilya could add something about the right wing in Russia. We actually have to better. leave it at this point, but this is a con- discussion we will continue to have. Hannah Parachoda, Ukrainian historian, at University of Lausanne in Switzerland, member of the European Network for Solidarity with Ukraine, and Ilya Budraitskis, uh, exiled Russian historian and political theorist, author of Dissidents Among Dissidents. Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia. They're on a speaking tour of the United States, organized by, by the Ukraine Solidarity Network. Elia is now at the University of California, Berkeley. Coming up, we speak to Jan Egland, the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, just back from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Stay with us. Congolese singer Franklin Bukaka here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We turn now to the dramatic deterioration in the situation in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where rampant violence of armed groups has displaced more than half a million people in recent months. Overall, more than 1.7 million people have been forced to flee their homes. The Democratic Republic of the Congo is also experiencing the largest hunger crisis in the world, with 25 million people facing starvation. The humanitarian response has so far failed to address the crisis. For more, we're joined by Jan Egland, Secretary General of Norwegian Refugee Council, just back from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Can you lay out the crisis as you see it in DRC and what the world needs to know, Jan? It, the, the crisis is beyond belief, really. Uh, it's, it's the worst hunger catastrophe on earth. Nowhere, nowhere else in the world is there more than 25 million people experiencing violence, hunger, disease, neglect. And nowhere in the world is there such a small international response to help, to aid, to end all of this, uh, this suffering. Uh, we are governed by humanitarian principles. And one of them is that needs alone should govern 
where we go and what we prioritize. And I would say as a as a as humanity, we're really, really failing the Congo now because it's it's not Ukraine. It's not the Middle East. It's it's it, it is that part of Central Africa where most uh, children's lives are at risk at the moment. Jan Eglund, if you could explain what led up to this uh, uh, crisis reaching these proportions, why are 25 million people uh, at the risk of hunger or facing extreme hunger, in fact, in the DRC? Because such a large portion of this vast continent, which is the Democratic Republic of Congo, is now engulfed in violence. Uh, you mentioned some of the displacement figures uh, in the intro to, to this uh, conversation. That's from one province only. It's called Ituri. It's in the north of, of, uh, of eastern DRC, where I just visited. I was also in northern Kivu. In those two provinces, there are 150 armed groups. They are fighting uh, against uh, each other. Uh, they are fighting for territory. They're fighting against the uh, regular army. And the civilian population is in the crossfire. So people are crammed together in abject uh, misery in, in, in hundreds of smaller camps. I visited several of those. Uh, we are able to give some shelter, some food, some assistance but only to a minority, really, because the small humanitarian uh, appeal, you know, a humanitarian plan for assistance compared to the vastness of the problem is one third funded. The United States is giving half of the funding. Too much of the world is giving nothing. And now there is a question of, of perhaps even reducing that, uh, that uh, aid assistance further. It's, it's, it's terrible, really. You know, Jan Eglund, it is not as if the world is ignoring the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, in fact, the DRC produces nearly three-quarters of the world's cobalt, an essential component of rechargeable batteries powering laptops, smartphones and, um, and electric vehicles. The reason I bring this up, we just interviewed uh, Siddharth Kara, who wrote the book Cobalt Red. He said, the public health catastrophe on top of the human rights violence, on top of the environmental destruction is unlike anything we've ever seen in the modern context. The fact that it's linked to companies worth trillions and that our lives depend on this enormous violence has to be dealt with. Did you see evidence of this and how it links to the hunger we're talking about? Children age 5 and 10 working in these places, all the corporations that are making their profits, yet the worst hunger crisis in the world. Uh, well, what I, I didn't see the these companies uh, and and their extraction and their vast bank accounts. What I saw was the the families, the children, the women, abused women who are the suffering from the conflicts that are fueled by these this black economy, by these economic forces that again lead to 150 armed groups not lacking arms not lacking uh, fuel. Uh, the neighboring countries are also several of them involved in all of this. So when I say I, I agree with you, 
the Congo is not ignored by those who want to extract the riches of that place. It's ignored by the rest of the world who would want to come to the relief of the children and families of, uh, of, of, of the Congo. Because we have uh, we've mapped this. No in the world is there so little aid, so little media attention, and so few uh, effective diplomatic initiatives to, to resolve the crisis. So, Jan, explain where exactly you went in the DRC. You mentioned uh, Ituri province and the people whom you spoke to, uh, a large number of whom women you spoke to who had survived um, uh, sexual violence. If you could talk about that, what they told yeah, you. I, I, I came via the, the most important town in eastern Congo. It's called Goma. It's next to one of the largest active volcanoes on Earth. I saw uh, camps north of, of Goma in uh, North Kivu, where thousands of uh, people are crammed together in, on this volcanic earth. It looks like a, a moonscape, really. There is no water there. So why do people flock together there in subhuman conditions? Because it's safe from the armed groups who drive them from their land uh, one of these groups is called M23. It has roots from foreign uh, interests, uh, and they have been on the rampage of late. Uh, women talk, talk about uh, tremendous uh, uh, sexual abuse, mass gang rape when they go out of the camps to collect firewood or, 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 or do any other necessary uh, business. Uh, met a school t uh, the master who had had 40 pupils in each class until the latest influx of people. Now there were 80 uh, school children in a small uh, classroom every day, seven teachers on many, many hundreds of, of, of pupils. We helped uh, uh, extend that school. We built retreats that has led to less cholera, but we're really overstretched uh, completely. Then I went up to Ituri, uh, which is uh, in many ways ground zero now for much of the conflict. That's next to Uganda. What really shock, shook me this time was to see people who had walked on their feet back from Uganda to where they fled violence two, three, four, five years ago, coming back to Ituri and saying we were starving to death now in Uganda because no one's feeding us there anymore as refugees. We came back here. It's better to die in our ancestral land than to starve to death in a foreign land. And they, these women, had all stories of sexual abuse on the way because there were so many of, the, of, of these uh, armed, armed men uh, on the road. Jan Eglund, um, 
We just reported in the headlines about the massive hunger crisis in Afghanistan as well, and we've spoken to you in Afghanistan. The World Food Gram saying it'll further slash the amount of humanitarian assistance it provides there, where more than 15 million people face severe food insecurity, blaming a lack of funding on the latest cuts, which will see the U.N. agency provide emergency food aid to just 3 million people. So you have Afghanistan, the massive hunger, and as you describe, DRC, the world worst hunger in the world. Um, and yet, our first segment was about the West pouring billions into the war in Ukraine. Can you talk about what needs to be done in a global perspective right now? What we need are, are summit meetings to deal with this exploding hunger crisis. We cannot call ourselves uh, an international civilization or a European civilization or an American civilization unless we do something to avert this, this chronicle of an announced famine that is going to grip from Afghanistan to the Congo, to Somalia, to Yemen, to the Sahel and beyond. Uh, the United States has been the most generous donor over the last two years. The United States is is cutting 20 percent of its uh, of its humanitarian assistance now from last fiscal year to this one. And next year, it will be a further cut in a situation where needs are exploding because of conflict and climate crisis. The Europeans are not stepping up and, and uh, as they should be. And where are the Gulf countries, really, or the large Asian e economies? I think we have, uh, India, you, you put on, you know, spaceships on the backside of the moon. Could you also help feed children in, in the Congo? There has to be summit meetings here where leaders, the, the bigger economies have to say, well, we cannot let uh, uh, children massively die from hun hunger and neglect in 2023. And Jan Eglund, uh, just before we end, if you could talk about you also looked at the number of children, uh, uh, in addition, of course, to the hunger crisis, the number of children in Congo who are being prevented from receiving an education uh, yes. over one out of three, uh, if you could, of, of every child in, in the Congo, if you could talk about that. Yeah, and, and, and that's very important. I mean, wh why do we do education in a situation where people cannot really feed themselves, because education is hope, hope to get out of the misery. So even starving parents and grandparents say, please educate our children, because that could mean that our community gets out of this dependence. We cannot live uh, under dependence forever. So hundreds of schools have been destroyed or closed because of the violence. But hundreds of schools are also lacking the basic equipment to be running. Uh, we in the Norwegian Refugee Council are able now to provide, as of September, thousands of children sort of catch-up classes. And these are, you know, uh, the children, youth. I met 14, 15-year-old people who have never been to school because they've been fleeing all their life. We have 20 seconds. And they are able to go back to school now because we got some funding from the U.S. and from Europe. If, if we got more funding, we could give to many more. There is hope.
Jan Egland, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, speaking to us from Oslo, Norway, just back from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feldstein, Augusta Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Octorina Nadora, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astu, Joe John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh.